Hello, everyone. I'm Brian Zimmerman, AVP, Client Content and Strategy at Becker's Healthcare. Thank you for tuning into the Becker's Healthcare podcast. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Michael Amini with the CORE Institute. Dr. Amini is a fellowship-trained orthopedic surgeon specializing in arthroscopic and reconstructive surgery of the shoulder and elbow. Dr. Amini, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Brian. It's my pleasure. So before we dive in here, could you just share some insights and a little details about your background so folks listening can appreciate where you're coming from? Yeah, I did my residency training at the Campbell Clinic in Memphis, Tennessee uh, in orthopedic surgery, and then did a fellowship in shoulder and elbow surgery at the Cleveland Clinic. I've uh, been in Arizona in practice since then, and uh, currently am in, in a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the CORE Institute in Phoenix, Arizona. Perfect. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, and then the next question I'm going to prompt you directly with is just can you can you talk a bit about InSpace and, and what it is? Sure. InSpace is, you know, I guess before we jump into to the actual device, I think it's worth understanding sort of the context of, of why it was needed and why we had a hole in our current treatment. Um, so there are certainly a lot of patients with rotator cuff tears in the United States and globally, and there is a wide spectrum of pathology. There's a wide spectrum of severity. And the larger tears, the massive tears, present a unique problem because each one is a little bit different. Um, and there's, for some patients, very good treatments, and for some patients, not so great treatments. And um, for some, a reverse re shoulder replacement is a very good option. Uh, for some, they can still maybe be repaired. For some, there are graft options, some there are tendon transfers, but each patient is very unique in how we treat them with their with their massive rotator cuff tear. And so InSpace um, is, is another tool that we have that is new to the U.S., but it's not new to shoulder surgery. You know, it's been in Europe for a decade. Um, there are over 30,000 cases in Europe. Uh, it was cleared by the FDA in July of 2021. So we've had it here in the United States for maybe going on a year, nine months or so. Um, and we've been sort of eagerly awaiting the opportunity to, to add it to our tool bag here in the U.S. Um, to try to replicate some of the experiences that our colleagues in Europe had with it over the last decade. Appreciate that background. And I believe InSpace really has the potential for a lot of different positives in patient treatments. And can you maybe share about what distinguishes InSpace? How does it present a different option than, you know, maybe what's previously available or, or currently out there? Yeah. So when patients get a massive cuff tear, the humeral head, the, the ball for the bone socket, will start to migrate upwards. It'll start to migrate proximally. And so you know, if you look at how a reverse shoulder replacement works, it works by depressing the head back down. It, keep, it creates another fixed fulcrum to allow your big muscles that are totally fine, like your deltoid, to be able to pull against a fixed fulcrum. So your head's not migrating proximally when, when you do that. Um, even things like the superior capsular reconstruction, which is an arthroscopic graft that you can put in there, it's really the same, mechanically doing the same thing. So we need to, to keep the head fixed in the socket to be able to have a fixed fulcrum, let these big muscles that are still fine in the presence of a cuff tear do all the big movements. And so that's really what the InSpace is doing. It's, it's a temporary spacer, keeps the head depressed in the joint, um, creates some smooth gliding between the humeral head and the acromion, which is the, the bone above it, um, to provide some pain relief. Um, interestingly, it's biodegradable. So, you know, it probably starts to degrade sometime around three months. It's totally gone by a year. Um, and the interesting thing is that we've seen both from the European experience as well as the U.S. experience 
that the results are maintained well beyond the presence of the balloon. Um, so the balloon's gone by a year. There's you know virtually no residue left in, in the vast majority of patients, but the results are maintained years down the road. Um, and so we think that that's probably because the balloon temporarily holds the head down and lets people compensate and rehab their remaining rotator cuff muscles, their remaining shoulder muscles to get back to a compensated tear. A lot of patients are walking around with tears and have no idea. In fact, there are probably millions walking the streets right now with tears that have no idea. And we're trying to get these patients closer to that group of people. Can you share a bit more about why perhaps um, it's so common for, for folks to be walking around with these tears and, and not have any idea? Can you can you add a little high-level context there? Yeah, there's a, if, if I had that answer really clearly, I, I think we'd be looking at some really groundbreaking information, but uh, we at least all have our sort of ideas and theories about why that, that might be the case. You know, certainly we know some tears based on what part of the rotator cuff tore can create more dysfunction than others. So it's not just a yes or no, or a big or small issue. It's really about what part of the, the rotator cuff tour, um, how demanding is that person's activity level. There's a lot of things that probably go into that, at least theoretically, and we certainly don't have that scientifically ironed out about why some people are symptomatic and why some aren't. Um, but nonetheless, yes, there's certainly, you know, probably at 65 years old, one in four people are walking around with a full thickness tear and zero pain and have no idea. Fascinating. I, I, I do appreciate you indulging me there a little bit. Um, yeah, I think the last thing to watch out for, of course, is if somebody has existing arthritis, you know, which at that point we, we call cuff tear arthropathy, massive cuff tear with arthritis as a result. Um, really, at that point, then the only remaining treatment that you, you can and should consider is a, a shoulder replacement. You know, if you try to do any soft tissue surgery in the presence of an arthritic shoulder, they're still arthritic when you finish. And I think the results are, are probably going to be inferior in that case. And Dr. Amini, can you sort of, for listeners, lay out what the, the recovery process looks like for, for, for patients treated with space? Yeah, so certainly the pivotal trial that ended up leading to FDA clearance in the U.S., um, the publication in Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery, uh, the patients were randomized to the same recovery. I'm sorry, the patients were standardized to the same recovery course because they had to be blinded to the treatment. So some patients got a repair, some got the in-space but the patients weren't allowed to know. So they got the rehab of a rotator cuff repair, which was sling for four weeks in that study. Now in Europe, they tend to be much faster with their rehab, starting at one or two weeks, um, starting active motion, getting rid of the sling very quickly. Um, and so now in the US, we're actually starting, uh, starting a new trial, which has uh, been initiated at this point called iAccelerate, where we're actually trying to see if we can replicate those same results with an expedited rehab protocol, having patients starting active motion at two weeks, getting rid of the sling at two weeks, and seeing if the results are still consistent with what we've seen from the American uh, trial and existing European literature. And so our ASC audience out there listening, and this InSpace seems to be a particularly good fit for the ASC space. Can, can you talk about why that might be? Yeah, I think, um, <clears throat> You know, if you look at some of the other options that we have for, for these patients, you know, a, a shoulder replacement for one, um, a big heroic repair that is a fairly lengthy procedure or a tendon transfer that's a fairly big procedure, you know, they all have their place, I think, but um, they're, they're bigger operations. They take time. They take, you know, equipment. They take some 
um, you know, personal and <clears throat> equipment capital. Whereas the in-space is a very quick operation, you know, average time to actually insert the balloon from start to finish once you've made that choice is roughly about four minutes. Um, doesn't mean you're going to be in and out of the door in four minutes, but uh, when you say let's do this, it's about a four minute, uh, you know, procedure to actually get the balloon deployed into somebody's shoulder. Um, and so that's a very ASD friendly environment. You can get somebody off the sleeve, do a quick scope, clean out the shoulder, verify that you, you see what you thought you were going to see. Um, putting the balloon, and, and that's really the end of the operation as long as you, you didn't need to do anything else. Um, and so there's a really great opportunity for high throughput, faster operations, um, you know, short anesthesia times, which also help facilitate uh, short recovery room times. Um, and it's uh, it's a very friendly friendly thing in that regard. Appreciate that, Dr. Amini. And then I want to shift gears slightly here and just uh, talk, uh, invite you to talk a bit more about CORE's partnership with Stryker. Um, what's the real value there that that partnership is bringing? Can you can you just share a little bit more about that? Yeah, so the CORE Institute um, for a long time, really for our entire existence, has, has done a lot of work in sort of healthcare reform and creating alternative payment models um, where we try to own and take risk on people's episode of care. And so we do these things where we can have predictable pathways. We have some standardized preoperative and postoperative pathways around very common things like a hip and knee replacement, a rotator cuff repair, um, hip fractures, you know, those kinds of things that are sort of big targets. We have very standardized pathways, which allows us to have very predictable outcomes at a predictable cost. And then we can use that information to go create alternative payment models of payers. Um, and part of that even includes the implant, right? We need to have a predictable implant that delivers a good product at a dependable and reliable and uh, usable price. And so we've partnered with Stryker for our hip and knee replacements and for our shoulder replacements um, and our sports medicine team to create this, uh, this partnership where it allows us to do these things that we do from the healthcare reform side. So the, the partnership allows us to deliver predictable outcomes at a predictable cost at the highest level that we can. Um, and so that's really uh, kind of where the, the value has been there. The, the opportunity is even greater in terms of what Striker has to offer that, you know, if you're looking at growing or expanding your ASC, um, Striker has an ASC program where they can, you know, do everything from the capital outlay, including, you know, booms, lights, beds that wheel the patient in and out, um, your intraoperative equipment, your implants that you might use during the operation, um, it's a very, very robust portfolio, this sort of multidisciplinary approach to helping you grow and build, um, you know, a, a surgical facility that if, if you're looking to do that. So that's where we've been and that's where some other opportunities are uh, to really take advantage of the breadth of the, the business has to offer. Thank you so much for laying that out, Dr. Amini. Uh, you've covered a good bit of ground here in a very brief amount of time. I appreciate it. But but what haven't we talked about today that, that you want to make sure listeners come away from this conversation with? Yeah, I think there's a few things that are worth really knowing about InSpace. A, a big issue here is that InSpace is big attraction. And I think why we've been interested in it in the U.S. and awaiting it eagerly is that, um, you know, it's a much less invasive operation than really any of the other alternatives for these patients. Um, it takes a fraction of the time of a heroic repair of a tendon transfer of a shoulder replacement. Um, and importantly, you know, we have to always consider, well, what happens if we get it wrong or what happens if it doesn't work? The leftover morbidity or the leftover 
complications are very minimal. You know, this it's a biodegradable device. So by a year is essentially completely gone. Um, and so if it doesn't work, you're still left with a, a fairly benign looking shoulder that you can then go do whatever alternative you initially didn't want to do, maybe because it wasn't right at that time. Um, and so it's, it's kind of this concept of a, a burn no bridges opportunity, whereas all the other treatments, if you try them and they don't work, you, you've burned some, some bridges there. You know, you've left implants there, you've created a certain level of scar tissue, there's an infection risk. Um, and so that's a really important thing for, for some of these patients. It's, it's a very successful operation with very low morbidity and it's an arthroscopic procedure with really an opportunity for an expedited rehab protocol compared to a lot of the other options as well. You know, the European experience has been to have these patients start moving at two weeks rather than six weeks or longer for some of the other choices. So that's, that I think is a really important thing to kind of wrap your head around why, why there's been so much interest. One of the other things that's um, I think important is that, you know, because it is so easy, it's important that we stay tight to the indications, meaning that there is an opportunity for people to use this and stretch the limits of where it can be used. It's not, it's not a treatment for everybody with a massive rotator cuff tear. Um, and if you start to stretch the limits of where you can apply it, you're gonna see results that aren't very predictable or that don't match up with the European experience or that don't match up even with the US experience so far. Um, and so it, it's, it's very quick, it's very easy to do. If you can put a scope in a shoulder, you can do this operation. And it's, it's an opportunity to potentially get overused and we need to make sure that we're using it in the right patients in the right scenario. And then we'll have those dependable results, good outcomes that we've seen in the literature from, from Europe and the US. You know, if you look at the US trial, they had a, a level one study just published in the journal Bone and Joint Surgery, um, you know, recently showing very good efficacy um, very good results in the, in the right indicated patients. Uh, they, had, they had a faster rate of recovery compared to patients who got a repair. The, the in-space was compared to rotator cuff repair and um, they did very well and they, they actually had a faster recovery course than the rotator cuff repair did. I appreciate you sharing that, Dr. Amini. I, and can you, maybe before we sign off here, I just want to invite you to share a little bit more about, you know, the 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 importance of, of making sure this is this is offered to the right patients. Um, is there anything else you could share about how perhaps uh, it's a, how that can be done, how people can be really rigorous about it? Um, you stay inside the indications, but there's the this, this sort of maybe potential for, for people to, to push it beyond where it's supposed to go. Is, is there any additional messaging you, you want to share with folks to maybe push back against that possibility? Yeah, I think there's a few things that we're, we're already starting to see from colleagues around that have been using it. Um, you know, it, it's, it's really designed for a, a very specific tear pattern. And so the rotator cuff are four muscles, uh, four tendons. And so you really need to have a well-functioning subscapularis, which is the rotator cuff muscle on the front part of the shoulder, um, in order for this device to work. So this is really meant for patients with big tears of the supraspinatus and infraspinatus, which is the top and the back. Um, if you start to use it in somebody who doesn't have a subscapularis, um, not only will it not work, but you could actually potentially at least mechanically decompensate them, at least in the lab, it actually pushes the head the wrong way. Um, whereas in the setting of just a supraspinatus, infraspinatus tear, it, it mechanically does what we wanted to do, to do, pushes the head back down. So really having an intact subscapularis is really critical to the success, to the success of the device. 
similar to that, you know, almost the same thing, but just a different way to look at it. Patients who have preserved overhead motion, so big rotator cuff tear, but they can still get their head over their, their hand over their head, um, are the ones that so far have had the best results. I would argue that those are the patients with intact subscapularis. Um, generally, if you're missing your subscapularis, you may not be able to raise your head, your hand over your head. So although those are two different points, they're almost kind of related to the same issues. So indications about what you're starting with um, are, are really critical. And then the other thing is, you know, we've seen a lot of surgeons start to use this over the top of a repair. So, so really it's designed to be used in isolation. You put in the balloon, that is the treatment. But we've seen surgeons repairing the rotator cuff, either partially or completely. And big rotator cuff repairs have a high failure rate. So they put the balloon in thinking it's gonna be a, more is better, right? So it's gonna back up my repair. Well, we don't have evidence to support that yet. And then in that case, you're no longer doing a balloon, you're no longer doing the in-space as the primary treatment. You're really putting that patient through a rotator cuff repair, which is a more painful, slower recovery. Um, that's not really, you're no longer really evaluating the outcome of the balloon. You're evaluating the outcome of your repair and you just use the balloon to help you protect your repair, which may or may not make some mechanical sense, but nonetheless, that's an entirely different usage um, that I think needs to be really separated from what we're talking about, which is using the balloon as a primary treatment, not with a repair, but really almost in isolation. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Amini, for, for digging in there and really appreciate your time and excellent insights today. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. We also want to thank our podcast sponsor, Stryker. You can tune into more podcasts from Becker's Healthcare by visiting our podcast page at beckershospitalreview.com slash podcasts. Dr. Michael Amini is a paid consultant of Stryker. His viewpoints expressed in this podcast are his own and in no way reflect those of Stryker.